A buyer would look at an insurance uh, certificate and say, you don't have any errors and omissions insurance? Where's your D&O insurance? You don't have a general liability, a commercial liability, an auto liability? You know, it used to be this list of three or four types of insurance that are just no-brainers that buyers look for, and if they don't have that, then we've got some serious issues. But what has become increasingly evident is that cyber is being on that list. Welcome to GovCon Live. Each week, we'll be talking about gaining a competitive advantage through a deeper understanding of the law. I'm your host, John Williams, and today we'll be talking with Dave Schaefer, an attorney here at Polaro Mazza, about how cybersecurity impacts due diligence and M&A transactions. This is the second episode in our multi-part series on gaining a competitive edge through cyber, data, and personnel security. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and we hope to have some fun too, but we're not rendering legal advice. Your unique facts and circumstances may change the advice that would apply. And the rapidly changing nature of the law may cause the information in this podcast to become outdated. All right, disclaimer over. Now let's turn it over to Dave. Dave, hey. thank you for joining us today. Yeah, it's Dave. my pleasure. Happy to be here. Dave Schaefer is an attorney in our corporate group, right? That's right. And uh, how'd you end up doing corporate law? Yeah, it's actually a pretty interesting uh, background. So uh, I'm somewhat of a second career attorney. So I started out uh, after college actually going into the military. I went to the Marine Corps and started doing information technology. And uh, at the time, cybersecurity was kind of referred to as information assurance. And so I was in the information assurance field and then started doing some more cybersecurity work. And then I left the military, went to a, a large government contractor, worked with them as a cybersecurity analyst. And at that point, really kind of fell in love with the intersection of this provision of services, this analysis of of information and information flow and data architectures and how that's really regulated. So I went to law school and uh, in law school, then I found another aspect that I really enjoyed and that's really deals and, and mergers and acquisitions, corporate work, finding small to medium businesses, helping them grow. And it's been a great experience for me, but you could kind of see my evolution and thought process. And now I am here in the corporate group and it's just really exciting to be able to help those kind of companies just grow or, or exit or whatever it is that their goals happen to be, to be able to help them do that. It's been very exciting. You talked earlier about, you know, when you're doing a deal, you're thinking through what can we give and what do we need to take? Mm -hmm. And where do we maybe retreat on an issue in order to get a gain on another issue? And it, and I'm curious how the due diligence process informs that decision-making. Can you talk a little bit about how you use due diligence to get to the point where you're strategizing on that, you know, which issues to give on and which issues to take on? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, obviously, there's going to be a little bit of a difference between whether you're the, so the seller or you're the buyer and the approach that you take either to the sell side diligence or to the buy side diligence. It's easier to explain really in a context if you're the buyer and you diligence the target company and you look at everything and you find, you know, there's some hair on this particular issue. Um, 
there's a number of things that you can do to address that. It could be a purchase price reduction. If it's a really material issue that you think needs to be remedied, that's going to have a large impact, maybe it's an outright purchase price reduction. That's a fairly dramatic remedy, but we have seen it happen. But really, then we talk about indemnification claims. Maybe we say, you know, we're going to cap your indemnification claim at 1% of the purchase price for everything except for the cybersecurity data privacy. Listen, we don't think that your policies are in place or adequate. We see that you haven't done any sort of penetrated testing. You've had some breaches in the past. You don't seem to have cleaned it up very much. We're really uncomfortable with that. Now, the value of the company is still there. I still th- want to buy it, but I'm very nervous about what was uncovered in the diligence process about how you've approached this one particular aspect of your company. And, and again, for as an example, we're talking about the cybersecurity and kind of data privacy aspect, but it could be anything. It could be a tax. It could be ERISA. It could be any number of subject areas that are that are giving us a little bit of concern And so while the cap for indemnifications is 1%, but not for this, this is uncapped, or we're going to actually create an escrow account, and you won't get your a portion of your purchase price for whatever the, perhaps the expiration of the statute of limitations on that particular issue. Let me make sure that I don't get investigated by the government first, Um, particularly for a seller that's doing 100% cash out. They're just going to sweep all the cash. You might never find them again. It's going to be really hard to make an indemnification claim when they're living on a beach somewhere and, and they're just going to say no. And now the company's out all of that money. So maybe we do an escrow. Maybe we do a holdback. We're really talking about a couple things. The value of the company, purchase price, reduction, or whatever the case may be. We're talking about cabining the liabilities. Maybe instead of a stock sale, we do an asset sale. Then we're talking about indemnification claims and escrows, and now we're talking about timing. What's the timing of the money? Somebody, a seller wants their money now, and they don't want to be on the hook for it later. They want to be able to go to sleep at night knowing that they don't have 18 more months to wait and wonder if the other shoe's going to drop. So the diligence process affects a lot of these kind of more material concerns ultimately because when we're talking about a deal, if you, particularly if you're a seller, we're talking about money. Sure. What money am I going to get? That's why we're doing this, right? I mean, nobody's, uh, to my knowledge, nobody's giving away the company. So we're doing this for money. So when are you going to get it? How much are you going to get? Right. So you're trying to, so you wear both hats, if I understand correctly. Like mm-hmm. you'll represent the seller on some deals and the buyer on other deals. And obviously you have a different objective Mm-hmm. You're wearing the seller hat. You're trying to maximize the value of the transaction, and I guess probably on the most favorable terms to get that maximum value. Right, the sooner the better. Yes. And when you're representing the buyer, you're looking for potential landmines, or maybe at least just potential leverage points mm-hmm. to get more favorable terms. Maybe that's a reduction in the purchase price. Maybe that's stretching out how it's paid or escrowed. So. Yeah, and the way that cybersecurity is impacting both hats that you might be wearing, especially when you're the buyer. So are are there specific things that as buyer's counsel, because this is helpful even for sellers to know, Mm -hmm. right? Put your buyer's counsel hat on 
You're pouring into due diligence. Your objective is let's get this purchase price down or let's get more favorable terms or let's find out if this is even worth buying mm-hmm. for our client, right? What are you looking for? What am I looking for as a buyer? Well, well, it's interesting to one of your points right there. What I'm looking for as a buyer is also what a seller should be looking for in the sell side due diligence, which is going to happen before you give all of those things over to the buyer. Because you want to do an audit yourself to find those landmines. That's a very good point. To try to pick those things apart, to try to remedy them to the extent you can such that there's not uh, the buyer doesn't have as much ammunition. Because to your point, we are talking about negotiations. We are talking about leverage. And so, you know, ultimately, a lot of these issues are going to be the same. But if I'm a buyer and I go in there, what are the things that I want to look at? I want to look at their information security policies. I want to talk with um, their chief information officer, chief technology officer, if they have one. I want to talk to a privacy officer, particularly if it's a company that's in a regulated industry. I mean, if we're talking about a healthcare company and you don't have a privacy officer, right off the bat, I know that you're not compliant with the HIPAA regulations. So... You know, I want to talk to those people. I want to get to know them. I want to get to know how the culture feels with regards to implementing these policies. Do they actually do it? Uh, I want to know if they do employee training. I want to know if they use dual-factor authentication. How do they segment information? I would ask for a data chart. Where is the information that you have? Or what information do you have? Where is it? Who can access it? How do they access it? And finally, how do you secure that? And it all should be written down in a policy. It all should be set forth in a written policy that is reviewed maybe annually, uh, that is exercised, that is drilled through at a C-suite type level, not just given to, we have an IT guy, just talk to him. Does, Does the culture of the company actually demonstrate that they believe in these policies? Or is this just something that their lawyer said, I have to draft one of these things? And I just, it's in a shelf, it's 10 years old, it's not even referencing the current ar- architecture, it's using the wrong parties. You know, so talk to me about that kind of exposure. So when you're, that's, that's great perspective representing the buyer that you're coming in and you're looking askance at this policy document that clearly has been sitting on a shelf collecting dust for 15 years. And I thought it was a really important insight that you shared that the seller, that shouldn't be the first time that's being discovered. That you, if the, and I know you're a big Nats fan, a big baseball <laughs> fan, right? So we'll uh, try to work in some some baseball references here. But if the sale process, by the time the buyer's coming in, that's opening day, the diligence has been opened up, the seller should have gone through spring training, right? I mean, you, you, that's not the first time that you're putting the bat on your shoulder. No, right? that, that's, that's a perfect analogy because that's completely correct. Uh, the first time they dust off their policy shouldn't be because they needed to find it to give it to somebody else. You know, it depends on the way that they want to approach a transaction. If they work with a, a good quality broker, the broker's going to let them know that they need to start doing this. If they add, give themselves enough lead time before they go to market looking for a buyer, they're going to have the time to do this. But it's the preparatory phase. It's the spring training. It, you have to give yourself time to do this. And you know, one of the things I tell clients all the time is that 
selling a business is a full-time job because somebody who's buying your business is going to buy all of it, the good, the bad, and, and they're going to want to know. They're not, as much as you might be friends, they're not just going to say, well, John said the business is fine. I'm sure it's fine. We don't need to see anything. And, and when that does happen, they usually come back and talk with our colleagues in the litigation department <laughs> after the fact. And so, yes, spring training is a great analogy. You want to get your, you want to get ready for the season. So, from a cyber perspective, do you have some key takeaways that when you're, if I'm a seller, mm-hmm. what should I be doing in spring training to to be ready for a transaction? We know what the buy you shared what the buyer's probably going to be looking for. Mm-hmm. So, what are some couple key takeaways to do when you're at that stage as a seller? I mean, I think there's some general things. And then I'll drill down into the more cyber specific. The general things is that you need to start working with your service providers, your accountant team, your uh, legal team, uh, a broker if applicable, any sort of mentors or other individuals in which you relied on for the business to start getting them all spun up to help you. The legal side and really going into the cybersecurity diligence side is I need to understand if I'm a seller, what are the applicable regulations? I mean, laws... As, as we even said in our disclaimer, laws and regulations change pretty rapidly, particularly in the cybersecurity and privacy field. They're changing weekly. Absolutely. There's proposed regulations. There's, there's regulations that are going through. There's statutes. There's different states that are running their own kind of regulatory regimes with regards to cybersecurity and data privacy. How big is your footprint? Where do your employees live, by the way? Are they U.S. citizens? Are they international but U.S. resident? I mean, these are all things that you need to get a handle on of what actually applies to me and have I been compliant? And if I'm not compliant, what do I need to do to be in compliance? Do I need to self-report a violation? Do I need to... Um, draft some documentation around a policy? Do I need to just understand my exposure on maybe a dollar kind of basis and and think to myself, I just have to understand that that's something that they're going to come back with and be able to know your company? I mean, ultimately, when you're selling a business, it's it's prudent for the the legal team to say to to say to you, listen, if you've got an ugly baby, we got to tell you that your baby's ugly, and I'm sorry to be the one to do that, but we're gonna put lipstick on this. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna get this in shape. So really understanding what applies, what are we what are we doing here, and then making sure that we're we're conforming to that. It's gonna do a number of things. It's gonna help your valuation. It's going to make the deal process much more efficient, much more smooth if we've already addressed these issues. And as I said, again, selling a company is such a huge amount of work. The last thing you want to do is prolong that process. If we can get it done in two months, why would we want to do it over six months? It's not comfortable for anyone. And you end up just getting more issues and spending a lot more money to really come out with the same result. It's really a penny-wise, pound-foolish kind of mentality. Well, I mean, as a member of our 
GovCon group here, I've always sort of wondered what goes on in the corporate group. Now I know, <laughs> we know that we're putting lipstick on babies. And yeah, we're the, trying. In the, in the corporate group. And that, but that's really good insight. And that that's right. I mean, you're not always dealing with a perfect situation, but you don't take the head in the sand approach is mm -hmm. what you're suggesting. We need to get out in front of this and we dress it up as well as we can. Uh, but before you get to that opening day point where the buyers are coming in and really, you know, putting you through the ringer. So, yeah. and we're talking about selling a company, but we want to get contractors to stop thinking of cybersecurity and data and personnel security compliance as just a cost center. Mm -hmm. That this is just, it's just going to, we're just going to have to spend money to pick up the phone and call the lawyer. And I don't want to do that before I have a problem. It's really an opportunity if you get ahead of the curve to gain a competitive advantage. But one of the other things actually that came up yesterday and I was on a call with a client and we're going through the diligence process. And so we got a supplemental diligence request from the buyer and one of the whole sections is, I mean, there's a section on corporate, there's a section on intellectual property, there's a section on employment, uh, employee benefits import-export, and other trade compliance sections, but there was an entire section on privacy and cybersecurity. And we're going through this, we're going through this checklist, and, and we're asking, I'm talking to the client yesterday, and I say, you know, they're asking here for information on this uh, 2018 incident that happened. And I, I noticed in the data room, the virtual data room that we host to share documents, I noticed that you have an IC3 form that you filled out and submitted to the FBI declaring that you had a cyber incident. Talk me through this. Let's, let's talk about what happened and, and how you worked through this. And, and the long and short of it is they had moved to the cloud at about that time. And somebody had gained unauthorized access to the CFO's login credentials. At the time, they were not using dual-factor authentication. They had just switched to the cloud. Somebody gained access. This person, this hacker, got in and just started sending emails from the CFO's account. Started sending emails to companies saying, hey, and this is, a, uh, you, you can see where I'm going. Don't send your payment to that account anymore. S these are our new wire instructions. We changed accounts. Don't send it to bank A. We're at bank B now. Go ahead and do that. And somebody did. Somebody sent about $23,000 to the wrong account. And so, you know, who's left holding the bag? They didn't have cybersecurity insurance. They reported to the FBI. The FBI, understandably, has a lot going on. They don't really do a good follow-up. And frankly, there's not much they can do. And so the company stands there and says, now, now what? So they, they increased some of the security. They did a dual-factor authentication uh, implementation. But then I talked to them yesterday and I say, now tell me what else you did to fix that. Did you do bring in anyone to find maybe attribution or uh, is that really the limited scope of this breach? Was it just to one account and was it just to the email server and not the domain controller or, you know, what else was accessed? And, and the response is, oh, we didn't do anything. I changed my password. We implemented dual factor authentication through the cloud service provider. We didn't bring in anyone. We didn't tell our lawyers. We didn't tell anyone. We filled out the form. We reported to the FBI. And uh, we did some minor 
minor fixes, minor changes to the login process. And that's it. You mentioned cyber insurance. Mm -hmm. If you had to just ballpark the percentage of companies that you're dealing with, how many of them have cyber insurance? I mean, as a ballpark, just from my experience, 25% maybe, maybe one in four. Yeah, it's not a significant amount, but that's something. Are you seeing that be an increasing factor in how companies are being sized up? Do you have insurance for this? I do. I do. And particularly, you know, whether a tail is going to be put in place at closing and or if they're taking the company and what's currently existing and what are the terms of the policy and, you know, just how it's becoming a lot more common in the sense of, a buyer looks at it and says, a buyer would look at an insurance uh, certificate and say, you don't have any errors and omissions insurance? Where's your D&O insurance? You don't have a general liability, a commercial liability, an automobile liability? You know, it used to be this list of three or four types of insurance that are just no-brainers that buyers look for. And if they don't have that, then we've got some serious issues. But what has become increasingly evident is that cyber is being on that list. It's it's getting on this list, and it comes down to what industry and what kind of company you are, and there's a lot of value ascribed to that issue. As you can imagine, if you're a heavy IT company, and that's where your value is, cybersecurity insurance is a lot more important to a buyer. If if it's not, it's less important. So it's becoming a lot more expected, if that makes sense. Well, I wanted to go back, if we could, to a point that you made about entrepreneurs and contrasting them with lawyers, which I think is probably a fair observation, Mm -hmm. but the risk, maybe less risk-averse entrepreneur. So, But a buyer isn't going to be less risk-averse in terms of risks that they're aware of, right? I mean, the whole – the process of buying a company is – isn't it geared towards determining – where those risks lie in the seller and then protecting against them or driving down the purchase price or – I mean, that's the game, right? So the the, right. The, the gig might be up on risks that you have accepted while running your business once a buyer comes in and puts you under the microscope. Yeah, I, I mean, I think buyers – depending on the buyer, obviously, you know, buyers tend to also be a little bit risk-seeking. That's why they play the game. They they enjoy it. And, and depending on, on their industry, they're very good at it. So really when it comes to the deal, when we're talking about risk, now we're talking about risk allocation. So when a buyer gets in there and we start going through the deal process, now we're really talking about risk allocation. And so as a seller, you want to, as kind of discussed, you want to walk away. You want to take your cash. Maybe you're selling 100%. And you want to just, you want to be separated from the company. But risk allocation comes into play. And a buyer looks at this risk, and maybe they determine the risk, they quantify the risk, and they're trying to figure out how to mitigate this risk because they don't want to buy liabilities. Nobody wants to buy a, a drowning asset. Nobody wants to buy a lawsuit. Nobody wants to buy these things that could ultimately drag the company down. And that includes these cybersecurity and data privacy issues. Nobody wants to buy those. And so we talk about risk allocation, and that's whether the indemnification, again, the escrow, we're t- that's how we really kind of 
implement the risk allocation. And so as a seller, you're thinking, I'm finally out of this. I've lived with the stress, but I finally did it. I started this company with the goal to exit and I'm going to have a successful exit. Well, whoa, 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 not so fast because you're not exiting your liabilities. You get to stay on the hook for that. And even worse, you're on the hook for the liabilities, but you can't run the company anymore. So you can't impact the remedy to those liabilities. You can't impact whether the buyer is going to fix it or maybe the buyer is going to just let this liability accrue and you're going to be on the hook. And there's obviously a lot of ways that we draft around this and we try to quantify it. We put dates on it and ultimately it may come down to litigation with regards to the allocation of the actual exposure if something happens. But a buyer, I mean, they want to allocate all the risk to the seller. The seller wants to allocate the risk to the buyer. And where we end up really deals with the results of the due diligence. What do we really care about? What is the seller and the buyer's ultimate objective? And where do we find that middle ground? But you can't find that middle ground until you do the diligence and you understand what risk I need to allocate. And and I don't think you're going to find a middle ground if you don't have advisors that know what to look for. The ground is going to be much closer to the other side Mm -hmm. if you don't know what to look for. And so I I want to talk a little bit about the buyer then. Sure. Shoes on the other foot. You're coming in and sure, we can allocate the risk and put it on the seller if we know where the risks lie. Sort of like signing a free agent. If you don't know what to look for in that free agent's medical history or red flags in their performance, uh, I'm not thinking about Bryce Harper specifically, <laughs> but that that's the first one that comes to mind here. If the buyer buyer beware, right? And if you're not an educated buyer going into that process, and even if you're an educated buyer, I mean, I'm sure you can talk about what happened to Marriott, and I mm-hmm. mean they've. That transaction, I mean, they've bought themselves, I think, a tremendous amount of liability. Now, our, our clients will be on a smaller scale than that, but potential exposure is still significant, right? No, I think that's right. And I think a buyer, I, I think that the analogy with with a, a player being traded is, is, is apt in the sense that, you know, I, I, I trade for a player and it's great. I look through the medical records. I'm comfortable with the injuries that have been sustained in the past. I'm comfortable that I can leverage this. It's fine. But as... Any reporter will report out, the trade is final, pending a physical. Sure, I've read the medical records, I'm comfortable with this, but let me get my doctor to talk with him or her. Let me get my doctor, let me get my expert. Because I don't want to rely just on the medical records that you provided. Ultimately, you know, we go in as a legal team, we look at the policies, we talk with the people, we try to get a better understanding. And then if we don't get any sense of comfort, you know, we're call our, our third parties, our um, sources, our, the people that we work with, our business relationships, and leverage those like forensic investigators and data teams to go in. And sometimes you want, uh, you want your person in front of the server walking through the code. You know, sometimes it's arduous. Sometimes I want to go line by line. I want to get my person in there to understand what it is. I want to commission my own penetration testing. I want to commission my own analysis of your intrusion detection system. I want to see what I can do if I were 
uh, a third party trying to gain access. And a lot of larger companies do the bug bounty program to try to keep up with this on a on a continuing basis. But a lot of buyers will also kind of think through that and say, I'm going to hire some resources to try to get into this company that I want, you know, obviously with the company acknowledging and noticing that and being on notice that they're going to do that such that you don't alarm the target and then ultimately blow the deal. Um, and there's a lot of random considerations and, and processes to go through with that. But you want to get you want to get your doctor to take a look at the athlete. You want to sure. get your person to do that. And, 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 and you want your doctor to know what he's doing. So And, and you want an expert. Yeah. Exactly. Because you're going to rely on that. I think that's a key takeaway. If we're um, thinking of some other key takeaways, and again, we're building towards this event on June 5th where you're going to be on the, the M&A due diligence panel, right, Dave? And you'll be sharing these experiences. Mm-hmm. You know, how does how are you seeing cybersecurity affect due diligence and M&A transactions? So how about a key takeaway or two? A key takeaway, I mean, one of the big key takeaways is timing. Lack of preparedness and compliance adds additional time because a buyer, if you are the buyer, you should be sure that the seller is compliant. If you're the seller, a buyer is going to make you compliant, and that's going to add a lot of time um, to one of the points that we addressed before, and it's going to cost you a lot of money. So timing aspect, and you want your deal to close now. Maybe your government contracts, maybe your contracts right now are are the most favorable. Your backlog is uh, sizable. You don't have any liabilities. You finally paid off that uh, credit line. You're looking as clean as as you could be. Your taxes, your financials, everything has aligned to maximize your value right now. You don't want an additional two to three month delay because you just didn't appreciate the complexity, the regulatory landscape, and really the requirement to be compliant with your industry standards with with law, with what your contractual provisions are. If you have a contract with a cloud service provider, what does that say? Who pays when the cloud has a security incident? Uh, you know, a, a preview, not the cloud service provider. That's who pays. And, you know, so are you insured if you make that payment? Sure, you use Amazon Web Services. They have a breach. You still pay. Go ahead and check your contract language. Um, so what exposure do you have? That's going to add time. That's going to add time. And like I said, this, these are stressful periods. These are high-intensity uh, deals. You don't have the bandwidth to accommodate yet another thing that needs to be cleaned up. So timing is always one of the big takeaways. Another one is culture, and I don't think we've actually addressed that too much. Um, but culture really goes to the post-closing transition. Culture is whether this deal makes sense for the buyer. Not just are they buying a liability, are they buying a ones and zeros issue, are they buying a lawsuit, but they're really taking on the employees. They're taking on a mindset. They're taking on a culture. And it's not just whether everyone wears jeans on Fridays. It's do they use dual-factor authentication? Are they comfortable with assigning all of their personally identifiable information to the admin department? Are they comfortable with uh, not using air cards or MiFi's or, or a BYO uh, policy? So how are we going to integrate these people? How are we going to do that? Is it going to work? You know, we're buying this company 
because we want to grow it. We're buying this company because we think that it can help us make more money. We're buying this company for a reason. And employees have a lot to do with that. Employees are the ones out billing. They're the ones out making relationships. They're the ones bringing in the money. So are we able to keep them if we put perhaps what they would believe to be draconian policies on them but are actually industry standard? Are we able to really integrate them? And if not, or if their policies, their procedures, their culture, their lack of training is so inadequate, are we concerned that they are going to cause a security incident? And I know you're talking with some of our other colleagues about insider threats, but are we just bringing on a lot more insider threat exposure? Who are we integrating with? And if you're the seller, you're thinking the same thing because increasingly we've seen in deals, a lot of the value is paid out in earnout consideration. And earnout consideration is dependent upon the company remaining profitable. And being profitable means you keep the contracts, you keep the employees, and you keep the AR coming in. So as a seller, you want that integration. Even if you walk, even if you're on the sidelines, you're go living in the beach, but you've still got payment coming in in 18 months, you want to make sure that that transition goes well or else you don't hit the benchmarks and you don't get paid. So we're talking about value and culture, but the post-closing integration starts, a good buyer thinks about post-closing integration in the pre-closing diligence. How am I going to take this policy or this culture, this mindset, integrate it into my team and leverage it in order to make this a success? Or else, why are we doing the deal? Yeah, well, we're hoping for a great result. We're hoping for a great event in June. Cybersecurity, data security, personnel, security, gaining a competitive advantage. Dave, really appreciate your time. Look forward to seeing you in June. Thank oh, you. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. If you'd like to learn more about how cyber, data, and personnel security can impact your business, we encourage you to check out our upcoming event on gaining a competitive edge through cyber, data, and personnel security. We're going to bring together perspectives from leading government contracting practitioners to talk about how cyber, supply chain risk management, data rights, and personnel security are shaping the competitive landscape for federal prime contracts and subcontracts. Insights and strategies will be shared around how cyber is affecting award decisions and teaming arrangements, what you need to do to protect your data rights, the increasing impact of cybersecurity in mergers and acquisitions, and the importance of developing a robust insider threat program. The event will be on June 5th in Tyson's Corner, Virginia. To register or learn more about the event, please view the show notes or visit us on the web at poleromaza.com. Thank you for listening to GovCon Live. This podcast was produced by Chris Godwin at Maximum Flavor Media, Max Hertenstein at 3 Volt Sound, and Frederick Nesfield. Music credits go to bensound.com, and I've been your host, John Williams. Please subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts, and check out our event on gaining a competitive edge through cyber, data, and personnel security in the show notes, or at poleromaza.com. Mm-hmm.